This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am so excited because I have with me Isabel Cañas, author of The Hacienda, which I know you'll remember from being a BNN Discover pick. And today I'm here to talk about this incredible new book, Vampires of El Norte. I love this. It has horror. It has romance. It has suspense. It has everything you'd want from historical fiction. This book is going to check so many boxes for so many people. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Like, I love this podcast. So this is a bit of like a little box ticked career milestone for me. So please excuse me if I do gush. (laughs) We are so glad to have you because this book is something that I think is so special. There are so many moments while I was reading this that I was like, this is everything I need in this kind of fiction, in this kind of horror. It's got these fantastical elements, but at the heart is this great love story between two characters that I think people are going to flip for. So I would love if we started with just you giving us a little description of the book. Yeah. So this book takes place in um, 1846 in South Texas, which was at the time Northern Mexico. And it's about two childhood sweethearts who, after being separated by a tragedy for nine years, are rather abruptly reunited right at the outbreak of the Mexican-American War. And they have to work together and work through their issues that they have and work through their past to save their home ranch from threats that are both human and supernatural. And the tragedy at the beginning is, you know, might or might not be be related to vampires. Hence the vampires of the title. Yes. And if that doesn't lure people in, the vampires in the title, I don't know what will because... I was sold from the second I saw the cover. Berkeley just knocked it out of the park. When that hit my inbox, my jaw hit the floor. It hit the floor. It's stunning. And so poignant, I think, for like, once I finished it and looked at, finished the book and then looked at the cover again, I was like, it's even more like perfect once you finish and you get to that like culmination point. So I think something that's so important about this book is that even if you think vampires aren't your thing, even if you think maybe horror or this kind of speculative world aren't your thing, this is such an easy and like compelling way to get into a genre that I think anyone would be able to pick up. And I wonder if you have some thoughts about like that vibe of horror that you've put out here. Yeah. So when I came, when it came to putting the horror elements into this book, I think the story between the two characters came to me first and foremost very strongly. Uh, usually when I conceive of a book, there's one uh, element of it that just pushes right to the front. Uh, for the Hacienda, it was the concept of the haunted house. Like I knew I really I knew in my bones I wanted it to be a specific kind of setting, a specific kind of atmosphere. With Vampires of El Norte, Nestor just walked into my mind fully formed, just swaggered right in, and that was that. And he was actually going to be a, a smaller character in another book, but conversations with my, with my editor led to a complete rehaul of the book idea and put him front and center with Nana at his side. So the characters came first. And I knew, because uh, it's kind of my, my jam at the moment, it's kind of the pony I'm writing, that there was going to be a horror element in this historical fiction novel. And I write about this in my author's note, but I thought I wanted to write about vampires. And I didn't want to do like your average 
well, there's nothing average about vampires, but having grown up in the Twilight era and having, I remember reading Dracula Under the Desk in AP Earth's History when I was 17 years old and just being utterly enthralled. Like, as a goth teenager, this was my bread and butter. But I knew I wanted to do something different. I wanted something a little more monstrous. And I knew I wanted the book set in South Texas, which is where my mom's family has hailed from for at least five generations, the Kanya set in my family. I had all these elements kind of swirling around, but it wasn't until I was visiting my mom in the summer of 2021 and just kind of like pawing through her bookshelves as I often do when I'm at her house, just like low-key stealing things. I found this book, um, I think it was about architecture in South Texas, you know, not super related to the subject of my book. But it had a quote by the politician, the 19th century politician Cheno Cortina, who is called sometimes the Robin Hood of that area because of his outlaw tactics. There's a lot of history there that I won't bog you down with. But what he did say is he described Yankee settlers who were coming to Texas and sometimes rather violently taking land from Mexicans who had had ranches there for hundreds of years. He called them vampires. He said these men in the form of vampires are taking your land. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. This document is from like the 1850s. That was way before Dracula was written. That was way before Carmilla was written. Like, why are we talking about vampires? And for a while, I had felt like I'd come up with the idea for this book. And I worried, am I shoehorning in this speculative element? Is it, does it vibe with this setting? Is it organic to the setting? And when I read that quote, I was like, yep, it is. <laughs> But I knew that I wanted my vampires to be monstrous. So I also leaned into Latin American folklore. Like I think some readers and listeners will be familiar with El Cucuy or El Cuco, as my grandma calls him, the boogeyman, who walks in many forms through folklore in different countries and different areas of different countries even. But it's always very frightful. And I also, you know, wanted to like do a little nod to the chupacabra. But yeah, at the end of the, at the, end of the day, with the speculative element, with the story that I'm trying to tell, I've been asked, like, why do you blend genres so much? And the simple answer is, is that it's what I want to read. <laughs> you know, I love my mom jokes that it's the genre that I write is smoochies, romance and spookies. So I love the two together. It just I can't write a story without a little romance. And I can't write a story without a little something spooky, a little something dark. So that's why I mashed it all together. <laughs> it's, that's a perfect description because this book, it never fully loses you in any one genre. There's something for everyone and it doesn't have the, you know, all the romance tropes, even though I think there is definitely like a friends to enemies to friends question mark to more question, like mm -hmm. a, such a good, interesting thing for people who are looking for that. Yeah. And like you said, vampires, it's so... It's always interesting to see everyone's take because culturally across the globe and across time, there are so many representations of vampires. Mm -hmm. This one felt very fresh and so new. I, the Thank descriptions you. of these creatures is coming from a bookseller. Like I am flattered, ma'am. <laughs> I love it. The descriptions of these vampires is going to haunt me for a little bit. I definitely was like, oh, that's. That's spooky. That's a lot. You know, it's not your Edward from Twilight. It is. No, it's a little more creepy crawly. You know, something that lurks in the dark. You know, I sometimes think of when I think of 
the relationship between the Hacienda and Vampires of El Norte and what readers will find to like between the two. Um, like what is the the common denominator rather? Um, I think the Hacienda plays with a fear of the dark when you're trapped inside of a house. And Vampires of El Norte plays with a fear of the dark when you're exposed out in the wilderness. Like when I was growing up, my dad took us camping a lot because not because he liked camping or was any good at it, frankly, but because he'd read like one parenting article that said like camping is good for fostering relationships in your, uh, in your family, blah, blah, blah. So camping, we went very poorly. But I remember just, you know, being out in the woods in the dark. This was in Southern California. I was very afraid of cougars. I was very afraid of bears. So of course my dad snoring like freaked me out in the middle of the night. <laughs> there was something very uncanny about feeling that far from civilization. I mean, I was 11. Were we far from civilization? No, it was South Orange County. Like we were not far from anything, but it felt very quiet, very exposed. And there's something very eerie. And I think something that taps into our lizard brains, you know, something very primal about being in the dark, exposed and knowing you're on your own kid, to quote Taylor Swift. <laughs> you're on your own out there. And there's there's something bigger and meaner than you out there too. And your setting in this story is so vivid. I, for people like me who have never been to that part of the world, I've only ever seen it in, you know, in films and read about it in books. And yet I knew exactly that feeling, that feeling of exposure and being so out of your element in the sense of, you know, that you're out here and it's nighttime and yeah. something else is with you. I think that's like a really beautiful thing that horror can do is it takes something um, like good horror will take a feeling that is universal or nearly universal or shared among a very large group of people, put it in a very specific place. So you're experiencing something new, like this is a new setting. Maybe you've never read a book set in South Texas before. Maybe you've never read a book set in 19th century Mexico before. But that feeling, like you said, of being like exposed, you know, the little hairs lifting on the back of your neck, knowing something's watching you in the dark, like, I think we can all relate to that. But the setting itself, I actually, my mom grew up in San Benito, Texas, which is like a grain of sand on the map um, in South Texas near Brown, I guess Brownsville is the nearest big city or Harlingen is the nearest town. I had a text chain with her and my aunt and I was like, hey guys. I want to have a thunderstorm, but the book is set in May. What would it feel like? And I would get like blocks of texts back from them. And they would tell me like, why don't you have more mosquitoes? Are you going to have this kind of tree? Are you going to have this kind of bush? Are you going to have like, you know, the wild hogs running around? Are you going to have this kind of critter running around? So in terms of the setting, I owe so much to my mom and my aunt because they provided so much of the color and their memories of living there. So... That was really cool and really special I got to share with them when I was writing this. That definitely adds that layer that I think you can't mimic in writing, that very lived-in experience that so much of this... I mean, even though it's historical fiction and none of us lived this exact thing, those pieces where you're like, I know what this place is like, you know, from someone who experiences it firsthand, it adds so much. And especially when you're reading through and you're like, I had to Google certain, you know, plants and things like that because I'm from the North. I had no idea what some of these things were, but I'm the kind of person who I'll, I'll Google deep dive anything while I'm reading. So I always Same have to though. do research. 
But there are so many moments where I was like, oh, I know exactly what that feels like. And especially along with these characters who feel so vivid and so real. Nena, for me, is just such an incredible insight and window into this world. There were so many moments where I was like, I love her. And there were so many moments where I was like, girl, you got to get it together and get a grip. Yep. She was frustrating to write. And as you said earlier, um, I think this book might will appeal to readers who like different things. Like it has elements that will appeal to readers of romance. And I think structurally at the end of the day, like I was binging romances when I was writing this book. And I think it really shone through in the structure. And so I think every good romance that I've ever read has a character where you think, God damn it, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, I know we're 80% in the novel and there's supposed to be a breakup or something terrible supposed to happen, but girl, get it together. (laughs) That ended up happening in the book too. I remember like, you know, brainstorming what was going to happen in that part of the book and thinking, oh no, I'm going to have to write this, don't I? (laughs) It's going to be so hard, girl, what are you doing? Yeah, it was was great fun. But my reader's heart was like, no. (laughs) And their voices are so distinct, like sort of the back and forth between perspectives in chapters. And it's not a straight back and forth. It's not like every other chapter, which I kind of appreciated because it it allows things to feel a little more organic than just, mm-hmm. and now it's this, and now it's that, and now it's this. Yeah. But they're so distinct. And I would be like reading a chapter from Nestor and I'd be like, I, I can't wait to get to the next Nana chapter because I need to know how she feels about what he just said. <laughs> Yeah, I think writing this book was really special because they came, the two characters came alive so vividly, like I said earlier, and their voices came to me very distinctly too. And Nestor as a vaquero of a certain class, he's born, you know, as a peon on someone else's ranch and comes to Nena's family's ranch as a worker. And Nena as the daughter of the ranchero, the guy who owns the ranch, like they have different educational backgrounds, different social classes, different expectations, different experiences in life. And so um, that really, God, it came to life so quickly. It was one of those things where when I was writing the first draft of this book, it almost felt like writing fan fiction because they were just like yakking away in my head, just chattering and chattering and chattering. And I was racing to keep up. It was something really magical where I felt like I was tapping into something. You know, I don't get woo-woo about my writing often. I'm very much a plotter. I'm very structured. I do a ton of research. I have a PhD in history, so I definitely bring that to the table. And I think most people who are PhDs are also deeply type A. <laughs> like, I need to call my therapist about this. Like, that's how structured I am about writing. And this book, I think, really, if you'll excuse the pun, took the reins and bolted off with me. Like, it was... I think I'm lucky that the two books that I've had published, both The Hacienda and Vampires of El Norte, both of them have had that spark of something that I can't explain, that I just have to race to catch. And I think readers will feel the same thing as they're going along, because from that first page, like you said, there's this big event that happens, and you have to just see what happens next. I mean, there's no way to... I can't imagine being like, well, I guess I'll just stop there. Like I said, I ha- I read this basically in a sitting because it it's very propulsive. The tension is so good. And you manage tension without, you know, for a horror book, it's not violent. It's not incredibly gory. It, I mean, there are definitely moments of unsettling imagery, mm-hmm. but it you manage this tension really through words in a way that I think will 
lure in a lot of literary readers because this isn't just your sort of shock gore horror book. There's, it's really yeah. about the tension. Thank you. I think uh, readers of, uh, who read a lot of um, horror might think that this book isn't as spooky as that their preferred horror reads, which I'm okay with because I, as a reader, uh, what I look for in horror is that tension, is that suspense, and that feeling of it's almost like this weightlessness that you feel when you're reading, that you're so absorbed and flipping the pages as fast as you can. I look for that escape. Readers find that in different places. Some readers find that in the tension that's inherent in romance. Some readers find that in the escapism of the world building of fantasy. I know I certainly do as well. Um, or in the escapism of historical fiction. But thank you very much. I think what I seek to do in my writing is to make my books books that you can't put down. And reader, that is harder than you think. <laughs> Especially when you're writing historical fiction where there's a ton of detail that you could include. But I just want everyone to know that I showed an immense amount of restraint when it came to the historical detail that I could have put in this book. And I cut a lot of side characters. <laughs> yeah, as a, as a Mexican-American, you know, I have a lot of cousins. My mom has like 60-odd first cousins. And so like, I had all these side characters and my editor was like, Isabel, this book is looking a little long. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. I will cut, I will cut. <laughs> The amount of detail you have, though, is so great. I mean, the like you said, historical fiction requires an amount of world building in itself because you really have to feel like you're there. And I know from reading The Hacienda and from your PhD background, I, it seems like research is something that is something you love and that is a big piece of your work. So I'd love to hear about the research process for this book. Yeah, actually, I find researching fiction, researching for one's PhD is like a different ballgame altogether. And that is like, that's homework. Researching for books for me has always felt like there's a little bit of kismet that just clicks into place when you find the right document. Like for the Hacienda, there was one document in particular that just like listed out everything I needed to know about the region that the Hacienda is set in, like the weather you know, flora and fauna, you know, what kind of crops did people grow? It was incredible. For uh, Vampires of El Norte, I had a much bigger task ahead of me because what was I doing? I had um, characters who weave in and out of actual historical events, which I didn't have in the Hacienda. And, you know, perhaps a bit innocently, I was like, no big deal. This is going to be fine. You know, they're going to walk into this extremely famous, well-documented battle and walk right out. And, you know, bada bing, bada boom, we go to the next chapter. Famous no. last words. Oh my God, I'm <laughs> eating my words right now. It was actually really tricky to try and balance the amount of um, work that I was doing on the back end. Because I think one thing that is very difficult to do as a writer of historical fiction is to know when to stop researching and start writing because you can procrastinate for forever reading another article reading another article because you're like wait no I don't know exactly what kind like what kind of herb grew in this particular region of Texas but at this time and like the next thing you know you're knee deep in like 19th century horticultural research that is in no way relevant to the character's journey so um I've often said when people ask me, like, how do you write historical fiction? It's like, pick a topic that you actually don't know that much about. Pick a setting that you're not an expert in because you actually don't need as much research as you think. 
you kind of can skim the top and find the stuff that is most important to the story. And that becomes set dressing. That informs the characters' choices. It informs their voices. It informs their world. But readers aren't looking for footnotes. They're looking for, you know, things that go bump in the dark (laughs) and things that scare them and like a really gripping character arc. So for this book, I read a lot about South Texas in ways it it was really interesting because for me, my family is from South Texas and has been for generations. The history of it is not something you learn about in school. And a lot of it has been silenced and rewritten from a particular perspective. And so I read a historical novel that was published posthumously because it was a bit radical at the time. I think it was published in the 1950s called Caballero by Jovita Gonzalez. And she was a folklorist who from South Texas who collected a lot of, you know, folk stories from people living um, who had been living on the ranches in South Texas, who continued to live there. And the story is also set during the Mexican-American War. And it's about a young woman who falls in love with an American and what it felt like for the people living in South Texas to suddenly have the border move around them and find themselves as citizens of a hostile invading nation that frankly was hostile to them personally because of their background and their language. So um, I read a lot of stuff that was really eye-opening and sometimes rather difficult as a Mexican-American. There was a lot of uh, harsh truths about how Mexicans were treated in Texas after it became a part of the United States. It was really difficult to read about, in fact, and to know that, you know, researching the Hacienda, it's set in a region of Mexico that my family is not from. So there was an element of distance. But with uh, Vampires of El Norte, reading about the way land was seized from Mexicans, the way uh, many Mexican landowners were murdered for their land. There was a long history of extrajudicial killings that were carried out by the Texas Rangers in the early 20th century against Mexicans, where I literally had to put the books down and walk away because these are my people. And suddenly it became very personal. And so when it came to writing Vampires of El Norte, there is a big element of that too. I think I gave a bit of my heart to the book. And I think most writers writers do that to every book. Uh, they're horcruxes. They carry a piece of our souls. There are different pieces of my soul that go into every book. And for this one, it's my family soul. It's very special to me, even if it is a bit chaotic in terms of genre. It's like, what are you getting? Is this a romance? Is this historical fiction? Is this horror? Yes, all of the above. <laughs> and it's also, um, you know, a bit of my own myth-making about Texas. It's a land of big myths. It's a land of big history and big cowboy hats and big boots and dark history, too. I think that I don't want to read a book that doesn't have a little bit of the author's heart and soul in it. You know, I think that that's really what... They're out there, though. Sometimes you pick them up and you're like, what? (laughs) I know. But those are the books that, you know, we feel differently about because when you are reading something and you can really feel that connection to the author, I think connection is such a big part of reading especially for this kind of genre where I think a lot of people head to genre fiction because they are looking for connection in things, whether that's in romance or in horror, what have you. And I think it can come from things that are familiar to you and have a personal connection. But I think Mm -hmm. there's also something where when something is completely unfamiliar to you and you may not know, but yet you can still say, but I know how that feels, even if that's not familiar to me. 
Exactly. And like knowing how that feels like as a reader, this is why I'm going to get up on my soapbox a little bit here. Horror and romance are not so different because they are genres of affect. They are all about making the reader feel something. And when it came to blending the two genres in this book, you know, structurally, technically, on a line level, if we're going to get real nitty gritty about it, it's like, you know, the exercise was not so different, writing the romance scenes and writing the spooky scenes. Because what was I trying to do? I was trying to make the reader feel something really strongly. And in movies, there's sound effects, there's lighting changes, there's the spooky music, you know, the dun-dun-dun, there's jump scares. And when it comes to writing horror and romance, all we have is black words on a white page. And I, I bow down to romance and horror writers and the people who smoosh the two together because it's really difficult, actually, to make, to really hit the reader in the feels. So... I make that my metier. That is my job. That is what I'm here to do, no matter what genre I'm writing. I want to hit you in the feels, and I'm not sorry. And I think both genres, too, they, whether it's spooky or spicy, it comes out of periods of transition. And I think your characters yeah. in this book, both your characters and your setting as a whole, are in states of transition. And so there's so much swirling around both of these people and in the world they're in that it allows for all of the nuance and all of the things that you look for in great tension building, but also going to hit you straight in the feels fiction. Oh, that's so insightful. You're so right. I'm going to think about writing my next book differently now. It's like people in transition. That, that is, I'm going to write that down very soon <laughs> once we get off this call. <laughs> I think, well, so much of, as I was identifying with Nana, sort of going through these things, like she's very different from me. Her life is very different. And yet she's going through this sort of coming of age, which I think hits a lot in in genre fiction as well. But it's also for her a coming of agency. She's really coming into her own. She's understanding her own power, her own purpose. And being on that journey with her is quite the ride. Yeah, a lot of her um, character is informed by being a woman in a very patriarchal space. And I think a lot of not just Latina readers will identify with this or readers who are raised in Catholic households like I was, where the father and even the mother's belief about how your life should be lived is a very powerful force. That to me felt very natural and very real. You know, I think... I had some early reader comments from friends of mine who were like, well, isn't her dad like a little over the top, or a little too much? And I was like, no, <laughs> I personally don't think so. Actually, but, you not know, quite. Read and, yeah, read and make your own decisions about that. And I think heightened experience, especially when you are, you know, she's young when the book starts, but she's young through the entire book. And yeah. I think sometimes when you're dealing with your parents, everything feels heightened, <laughs> even if... Exactly, exactly. It's like, I'm in my 30s and I still am like ha- being in this state of transition. Like I just had a baby dealing with my parents and my in-laws is like, we're in a state of transition and suddenly things just feel a little heightened, a little different. And I think for Nana, trying to find her agency and trying to carve agency out of a world that doesn't want to give it to her. You know, things are... The stakes feel quite high to her. Are they high? You know, yes, actually. <laughs> I write actually, books in high stakes. Yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah, I retract that statement. Yes, the stakes are high. And they're very personally, for her personally, they're very high. 
um, because she's somebody who's very headstrong in terms of she knows what kind of life she doesn't want. And she has an idea of what she does want, but it's also very scary to reach out and take it because she's going against what are very powerful forces in her life. That is the will of her parents, societal expectations about the kind of person a woman of her status should marry. So I think that's a, it's a familiar trope to readers of historical fiction, historical romance, but it's in a, a fresh setting and there's a hot cowboy involved. So what's not to love? Exactly. Watching her confront not only her own personal struggles with her love and her family, but these bigger struggles of her trying to imagine her future in a world that seems to be sort of slipping out from under her as she watches the American, the Yankees swing through and sort of take Mm -hmm. control in a way that she doesn't know how to grapple with that and neither do the people around her. But all she knows is that she wants to stand up for what she has and what she loves and what she believes in. And I think that even though culturally, this is a fresh setting in so many ways, I, I don't, I can't think of so many books that, you know, are set in this time and in this place. But that struggle is so clear and so like, accessible to readers, I think. Yeah. And I think actually now that I reflect on it, it's like when you look at the world now, it's hard to envision our own futures a bit, you know, with so many things falling to pieces around our ears. Um, So maybe that will resonate with readers some. But, you know, it was a bit tricky trying to figure out where exactly in this conflict to place the story, because at the end of the day, historically for many people, it did not have a happy ending. You know, it was a period that ended in a lot of tragedy, a lot of loss of agency and a really profound transformation of identity and a really profound transformation in one's place in the world. It was tricky, but I found a happy ending, guys. I can confirm for the romance readers out there or those who are interested in a scary tale that ends on a lighter note, this one's for you. (laughs) And I think it blends into this sort of newer wave of horror that we're seeing that are telling stories of women and that are telling stories of people of color. And we've Mm -hmm. got so many incredible authors that are coming out with these works that are like, I'm telling my own story and I'm telling my own own cultural story because the agency there of being able to reclaim stories is so important. And I think in this genre of horror, there's so much room for growth and opportunity for those stories. I absolutely believe that. And I think in a way we're reclaiming the things that have scared us. And I have said this in the past and I, I do believe that it is true. I think there are, when it comes to horror, everybody, every reader, I think gravitates towards a corner of horror that pushes their buttons the most, you know, in all the best ways as a reader, mm-hmm. it scares you the most. And it's a very broad genre, which is wonderful. There's space for everybody and everybody's voices can one day be heard. So as a woman and as a Latina, I've often felt, you know, picking up a book that was written by a white man, for example, like, oh, I realize, hmm, the things that frighten you are not the same things that frighten me. And so I think in terms of like women writers and writers of color, they're I want to read it all because suddenly it's like, this is an experience that echoes mine. These are fears that echo mine. These are 
you know, it pushes my buttons in ways that are closer to home and therefore scarier and more escapist. And I just, I want it all. I want it all. I will shout about it for the rooftops. Like there are a lot of books lately that have been coming out or will be coming out where I'm like, damn, I can't wait to read this. I can't wait. I think we're having a really incredible moment right now in horror. And I am so, so grateful to be a part of it. Absolutely. Sometimes for a lot of readers, the biggest horror is a white man. It is. And when you read the old white men, they're like, ooh, the other. How scary. Me, comma, the other, comma. I'm like, hey, what's up? (laughs) Right. Where's my book? (laughs) And I think for, again, I mean, we've talked so much about genre fiction, but it is one of the ways I've learned the most about the world and most about Mm. other people's perspectives are through these non-traditional literary fiction genres and avenues because the lizard brain piece, like you mentioned earlier, is so prevalent that I think it allows people to look for things that they wouldn't normally look for in fiction and allows for them to connect with characters that, you know, we've all heard the, well, they're not like me, so I can't understand the struggle. I can't identify with the main character. Well, sure, Jan. (laughs) But when someone's chasing after you with an axe, that's something that I think everyone can connect with. You know, I think one special thing that horror does is that it, you know, it places a pair of shoes right in front of you that will fit. So you step into them and you walk a mile in someone else's shoes, so to speak. Like the opening is right there. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid of it too. Let's go on a ride. Exactly. And I know that for people that also love this genre that I have communicated with about this book and about so many others, we're all on the same page. And, and it's, I think it's just so much about getting other people who say they don't like horror, they don't understand to give it a try. I hope this is a gateway drug for readers of romance or historical fiction to dip their toes in a little bit. Because it does, or maybe readers of, of horror who, you know, maybe want a little bit of kissing in their horror to move the other way. It's kind of like this, you know, the South Texas in the Valley in particular is a very fluid borderland. My mom wrote a whole thesis about this, about how it just, the border has moved back and forth over people over the centuries. And it's very fluid. It's, historically, it's a very, been a very fluid place, like other parts of the world where borders have moved quite a lot. It's one of those pockets where things are shifting. And I think this book is similar to that, or it echoes that, in that it sits on the borders of many different genres. And it kind of, depending on what chapter you're in, what kind of experience you are bringing to it as a reader, it may shift one way or another. So you can't pin it down, but it will it will take you on a journey. <laughs> I love I mean, again, who doesn't want their books to take them on a journey? I mean, that's that's the dream. I feel like that's a good segue because, of course, I want to ask you about your favorite books. Yes. What are the the Isabel Cañas recommendations? Who are you as a reader? Oh, right. So I think like, oh, my God, stuff I've read. I'll start with like some horror that I've read lately. I absolutely loved Lone Women by Victor Laval. It rocked my world. Absolutely. Like, rocked my world like if you if anything about vampires of el norte appeals to you in that it's like you know a western it's speculative it's got monsters it's set in a specific time period kind of like old westy um and it's got a strong bipoc woman lead like this book is for you and also like no spoilers i really loved the note it ended on 
it left me feeling whole. You know, is it a bit scary? Hell yeah. Does it feel good? Hell yeah. Like there were points where I was flipping through the page. There was a point where I literally dropped my Kindle because I gasped. (laughs) It rocked my world. Let's see what else. I think um, as a new mother, it has been really difficult for me to read things that are long. So I've been reading a lot of short fiction. In terms of horror short fiction, if people aren't familiar with this world, I really recommend checking out online magazines that are just out there for free. The Dark is incredible. Sylvia Moreno-Garcia used to edit it. And man, oh man, is it good. And speaking of short fiction, I always shout, this is my Sylvia Moreno-Garcia deep cut. Certain Dark Things is her collection of short stories. I love her prose, period. Do I love it best in short fiction? Yes. There's something about these little gems that just... It's just my favorite. It's just my favorite. I've also been reading um, Arcady Martins, A Memory Called Empire and A Desolation Called Peace. Might be weird coming from me, given the books I have published, but they're excellent. Um, Books that I'm about to get started on include Island Witch by Amanda Jayatissa, which is a gothic set in Sri Lanka. It has witch doctors. It has spookiness. I believe it's also set in the 19th century. So there's like this tension with colonial rule and a young woman who's trying to come into her own. I'm about to dive into it. She's written thrillers in the past, like My Sweet Girl and You're Invited, which are amazing. Like just, again, Kindle droppingly good. (laughs) Amanda Jaitis's Island Witch. I don't remember when it comes out. The other book I have uh, pulled up on my TBR is The Haunting of Alejandra by V. Castro. I haven't dipped into it yet because I just had a baby and I know it deals with some postpartum feels. <laughs> I'm going to like just kind of dip in and see how I feel. Um, but her other, her oeuvre is incredible for those who are interested in horror written by Latinas. There's some really good stuff. There's some really good it. stuff. Goddess of Filth is a novella that she wrote about possession that uh, it lingers. It's got some really haunting imagery. It hits a little harder than you expect. But it, it's definitely got some lingering imagery. Yeah. I love that. I think, like, if you look at my TBR or look at any of my, like, millions of lists or just my bookshelves, I am constantly just adding every time I have these conversations. I'm just like, well, there's three more books I have to add. Yep. But Just stacking them up, stacking them up. And, like, what are things that have been able to actually hold my attention in this, like, new Mother Hayes romance and, and horror? So... Love Theoretically by Allie Hazelwood. Everyone and their mother wants to read it and everyone and their mother should. (laughs) It's fantastic. It is just a delight. It's her best yet. I will die on this hill. It's hard reading in this period of my life, but those are things that have really just really seized my attention. I know this is going to maybe seem like a daunting question as we're talking about like your book just coming out and obviously your baby being fresh to this world. But are you working on anything coming up next? I am. I can't share anything. (laughs) (laughs) This is a familiar song and dance routine, I'm sure, for you interviewing authors. I've got two (laughs) magical things in the works that I'm so excited about. I can say that uh, for readers who like, I hate saying this, but like air quotes, my brand (laughs) of like, a little bit of haunting, some historical vibes, and certainly quite a lot of Mexican and Latin American history. There's more coming your way. Will it have a little more fantasy? Maybe. Will it have a little more horror? Maybe. 
I guess you'll just have to wait and see and (laughs) sign up for my newsletter because that is where everybody hears about things first. (laughs) Amazing. I, all I know is that whatever it is, I'll be there. If your name is on it, I'll be there. And I think readers are going to be so enthralled and in love with this book. Vampires of El Norte, it's out now. I can't wait for people to read it. Isabel, thank you so much for being with us. It was my pleasure. And to any reader who's thinking of picking up Vampires of El Norte who has picked it up, thank you so much. Because I meant it when I said, like, there's a piece of my soul, like the family piece of my soul is is hidden away in the pages of this book. And I hope it speaks to you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Vampires of El Norte. I'm Mark at my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, but I have two fantastic booksellers who are going to recommend books today, and we're going to start things off with Madison. Go ahead, Madison. Yes. Hello. Thank you. I am Madison. I am coming to you from my store in Los Angeles, Um, and I'm excited to talk about this resurgence that is happening uh, with vampires, particularly like an artistic take in writing about vampires. Uh, So when I was thinking of a book to recommend, I decided to go with Woman Eating by Claire Coda. And this is a story about a woman who is half vampire, half human, living in London, trying to like conquer one her hunger while also trying to remain as human as possible. So this follows the story of Lydia, who has just left her home and her vampire mother behind to live in London. And all she can think about is finding this balance to live amongst humans while also balancing out the hunger she has to kind of feed off them. And throughout this story, it is kind of very difficult in London to find pig's blood, which is what she can have. What I love about Lydia's character is that she also has this strong, strong desire to enjoy human food. So she is also not only she half human, half vampire, she is also mixed race and she is half Japanese. So she remembers her father just eating and having all this like delicious Japanese food. And she has this like strong desire. She wants to try it. But like, since she's a vampire, she can't digest that sort of food. And then you have the added things of the other artists in which the place, the art gallery she is squatting in, she wants to be like them. She wants to try the food they bring. She wants to be friends with them. But like, where does this balance go? Because, you know, it's really hard to make friends when you also kind of want to eat them. So she has the other artists. There's a strange man following her at night. And she started developing a little bit of a crush. What I think I like about this tale is that, yes, it has like the classic vampire like will they won't they give in to their desires but it's also just like a very artistic taste on finding that balance in your life and finding where you belong um you get to see her like heritage and her background you get to see that with her being half Japanese also being half human half vampire I think the like parallelisms and the imagery there is just really strong you get to dive into her relationship with food Uh, which I think is often not talked about a lot in books is like how someone can have like a difficult relationship with food. And I think this is a unique way of showing that you just see her struggle with what she can eat and like how she must exist. And I think it's a powerful take on sometimes what it feels like to just be human and find that humanity within yourself, which is why 
I really enjoyed this book and I liked how it kind of was a whole metaphor for reality and just existing in a place for the first time that is new to you, which is why I recommend Woman Eating by Claire Coda. But I know also, Mary, I know you have a good pick for this week as well, and I can't wait to hear about it. So if you would like to jump in, that's all I have about mine. Thanks, Madison. Um, I'm joining y'all today from Beaumont Barnes & Noble in Texas. So my pick for the TBR top off is Rachel Harrison's Such Sharp Teeth. When we meet the characters of this book, we meet Rory, and Rory has come home from New York City. She's helping her twin sister, Scarlett, out, who's about to have a baby. And so Rory is leaving a bar one night when she's met an old classmate, and they part ways, and she's on her way home, and she hits something with her car. So she gets out of the car, and the thing that she hit um, chases her and attacks her. And she tells her family when she wakes up in the hospital that it was a bear. There was no way. It was just a bear. Um, But deep down inside, she knows it was something not a bear and maybe not of this world. So um, weird things start happening. And she starts to try to follow what she's turning into and what turned her. And uh, this book is very funny in points. It's just deadpan funny. And and it goes places where you don't think the monster is going to take you. And that's one of the things I really liked about it. So Such Sharp Teeth by Rachel Harrison. Fantastic. Thank you both. Some spooky vibes. I love that very much. Um, I always appreciate uh, a novel that can mesh monsters with women in particular. I think that those two get put into strange categories sometimes throughout history and literature and art. And I think this new crop of titles is taking that and giving it even better power. So thank you both for your picks. Uh, But that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over. Uh, Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. Madison, Mary, where can we find you both at your stores? You can find me at my store, which is BN Events Grove. You can find me at my store at BN Beaumont TX. Excellent. Thanks both so much. Uh, Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.